0: Welcome to 7 Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. In this podcast, we explore the weekly Torah portion in about 7 to 10 minutes. We make modern meaning out of ancient texts, exploring them through liberal Jewish eyes. To become a supporter of this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash 7 Minute Torah. Alright, welcome everybody. Guess what? It's finally happening. We're finally leaving Sinai. We've been there for almost two books of the Torah, since the middle of February. And after receiving the laws, and receiving the Ten Commandments, and building a golden calf, then building a mishkan, a sanctuary, then learning how to use it, and all this priestly stuff, we are finally, finally ready to push off into the desert. This week we're reading Baha'lotcha. Baha'alotcha is Numbers chapters eight through 12. And this is the parsha where the people actually make their way out into the wilderness. This is one of those parshiot that's so packed full of stories and teachings that we could never cover all of it. And so today I've turned to a colleague of mine, Rabbi Zoe Klein, who is an expert in storytelling to help us find a couple of spots in Baha'alotcha where there are interesting stories and interesting teachings to be talked about. Now, Rabbi Klein is also the author of a really interesting new book of stories called Candle, Feather, Wooden Spoon. So once we get done talking about some of the stories that surround this Torah portion, we're going to talk about some of the stories that she's written, as well as the storytelling process, what it means for her as a storyteller and as a rabbi, and what it has meant in Judaism in general. So as usual, for the first about 12-13 minutes, we're going to talk about the parsha, and then we'll take a short break, and we'll broaden our conversation in the ways that I've just described. Rabbi Zoe Klein, welcome to 7 Minute
1: Torah. So good to see you. Thank you for having me.
0: You too. It's a pleasure. I'm excited to talk with you, talk about the parsha, and talk about your new book. Um, You are a rabbi and an author. You're the rabbi at Temple Isaiah in Los Angeles, California. And you're also the author of an, a number of books. And in a little while, we'll talk more about your newest book, which is a compilation of stories. But if it's okay with you, let's talk Parsha first.
1: Absolutely. Well, it's Behalotcha, which is a great portion that is chalk-filled with so many teachings. And it actually has two that are some of my favorites. Can I share them with your your listeners?
0: Yeah. Talking about storytelling, which is what your book is about, or your book is a book of stories, Mm -hmm. we're just emerging from Leviticus right now, which is sort of dry Mm -hmm. laws after dry laws. And so here we are about to launch into the desert, and now we start to get some of these really juicy story moments in the Torah. So yeah, I know you have a couple of favorites. Yeah,
1: it's interesting. Sometimes the drier portions give way to more imaginative narrative opportunities. So it is really interesting as a a beginning point to storytelling. Mm -hmm. But um, in this Torah portion, there are two things that I've always loved. When we think of Jewish symbols, I think the first thing most people think of is the Mogen David, the Star of David, We don't always think of the menorah as the the first symbol, but it's my favorite Jewish symbol. And there's a teaching based on this week's Torah portion because it describes the, the making of the menorah. And in this Torah portion, it says that Moses should make this the menorah out of one golden piece. It should all be of one piece. You can't have the core and then have branches that are screwed onto it. It has to be just one mold according to what God showed Moses on the mountain. And so it's an interesting thing because it doesn't say that anywhere else. It doesn't say build the altar according to this blueprint or build the tabernacle according to these sketches. But it does seem to say that Moses needed extra help with the menorah, even though to us it might seem like, oh, that, that kind of makes sense. But Moses needed extra help. And so The commentator suggests that the reason is because the menorah represents our lives and keeping our lives in balance. So just as all of the branches are the same level and the flames are supposed to burn at the same height, um, similarly, our own lives, whether it's our family life, our work life, how much we dedicate time to study, how much to tzedakah, how much to our partnerships, they should all be given the same energy and be burning at the same time. But that's so difficult. And we're all so out of balance. And it's so hard. Even Moses left his family behind when he began the Exodus that even he the most enlightened of us all needed some sort of guide a proof. So I love that teaching.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting in terms of the ways that the rabbis or I guess that we as Jews find meaning In the text, because of course that's not what the menorah is about, right? It's about this beautiful candelabra that's lit, and it represents the days of the week, and it's a reminder of creation. It has all kinds of symbolism attached to it. It's just such a reminder that there are so there are so many multiple levels of meaning, Mm. and how it evolves. Yeah, and that and to me that the rabbis who created these beautiful midrashim and stories way back when were thinking about the same things that we're thinking about. We're thinking about work-life balance and how do I balance my my work together with family and taking care of myself These are and study and learning. These are all different aspects of life. And the rabbis and Jews who lived 2000 years ago had the same needs and the same concerns and the same kinds of challenges with balancing them, which means they were writing stories and creating Midrash to express some of the same issues that we're struggling with today.
1: I love that. It's so it's so remarkable. And maybe one of the other teachings hidden in this is that even though we're not going to always get it right, sometimes I think of myself like one of those Cirque du Soleil acrobats with the spinning plates. And there's always one of the plates is wobbling or falling. I'm not going to get them all spinning at the same time. But maybe the lesson here is that since the branches are all of one piece, at the very least, remembering that all of our actions emanate from one golden core of values. And so we can at least try to align ourselves so that we're not, you know, scattered. Um, So there are a lot of great little lessons. I just wanted to quickly add the other symbol that I love is the Seder plate. And I often, in, in the same way that you were talking about our own lives, um, I often think about the the difference between leading your life as if it's a seder plate and leading your life as it's a as if it's a buffet plate. <laughs> so the buffet, everything's blending together, and it's like kind of chaotic and soupy. But the seder plate, everything you do has uh, a deeper meaning and significance. So hard to do, but another another goal.
0: Yeah, and I can see how that relates to this idea of the menorah as being created from all one piece right because the symbolism there is these are all parts of you and integral parts of you and sometimes i think we tend to judge ourselves for doing too many things having too many pieces of our lives but we're complicated and we actually need work and accomplishment and we need rest and we need family and we need and you know so going back to your symbolism of the plate the seder plate keeps these things separate and i think there's something to be said for that right you have to focus individually Mm -hmm. on How you build these different aspects of your lives, but also maybe sometimes they do blend together. I don't know about you, but for me as a rabbi, work and home life sometimes blend together. My family comes with me to shul. And, you know, so then what am I doing? What am I doing right now? Am I doing work or am I doing home life? And I think that that's often the case for lots of us that we're, it's hard to keep these silos separate, but we do need to make sure that we're putting Attention and emphasis into these various different parts of our lives.
1: Hmm. I can 100% relate to that. And, and sometimes the magic is when it is when they blend and when you realize it's like the menorah that it's all of one piece. Mm-hmm. You know that where the the rabbinate or the ministry is not is not simply when you're at the shul. It's you know walking the walk in the grocery store <laughs> and everywhere else too which I guess is actually a statement about Jewish life.
0: You know, Jewish life doesn't just happen in one place. Judaism isn't just one branch of the menorah. Judaism is actually something that happens in a whole bunch of different areas of our lives. When I'm in the synagogue, certainly there's Jewish things happening, but at home as well, home is a Jewish place. And how do I think about my home as a Jewish place? How do I think about going to the gym as a Jewish part of my life, I'm taking care of the body that is a gift from God. How do I think about grocery shopping as Judy as Jewish? So, in on the one hand, I think Judaism could be one of these branches. but on the other hand, if the whole thing is the menorah, then to a certain extent, we're living these Jewish lives and imbuing our Jewish values into almost everything that we that we do throughout our lifetime.
1: I love that. I actually, I, Ooh, I hadn't thought about that also just in terms of branches of Judaism itself too, you know, the Klal Yisrael concept and, um, you know, all of our work with diversity, equity, and inclusive inclusivity, um, you know, that it's all of one piece and how we, whenever we exclude someone or we forget what Klaal Yisrael really is, whether it's denominational or people who speak a different language, um, we're kind of breaking up the menorah we need god to show us again just like god showed moses how to do it
0: yes that's really true right that that wholeness which maybe ultimately is the message of the menorah here is about wholeness mm-hmm. how do you see yourself as a whole person how do you see our people as a whole set of people with diversity right there are different things that i do in my life and they all feed my my wholeness and my well-being and by the same token, we as a people we're not all the same we believe different things we think differently we pray differently we act differently we look differently and yet there's this wholeness and so that you know the menorah is this seven branched thing that it, it it is a whole and yet it also branches out in different directions and each of those different directions actually is of equal importance that's such a beautiful mm-hmm. idea look at all the meanings we found in one little menorah well
1: if I could it it if- connects to another part of Baha'u'llah Techa, which there's this little strange section of this Torah portion where um, you have the Passover ritual explained and the Passover sacrifices and offerings. And there's a group of people, they say that if you come in contact with a dead body, you can't partake in these rituals. So there's a group of people who are upset about that and they don't wanna be left out. And they say, it's not fair. Can we also make a Pesach offering? And so it's almost as if this sounds kind of heretical, but God thinks this over, right? <laughs> the <laughs> idea of God having to think something over um, and says, you know what? They're right. Let them know that they can have this other Passover, this Pesach Sheni. you know, maybe two weeks later or so um, they can have this separate Passover. And in that way, um, they'll be able to be included But the reason why I feel like it connects to what you were just talking about is that here are people within the sacred text who are saying, wait, hold on, we're about to be left out of this story. Don't leave us out. You forgot about us. We were over here taking care of Joseph's casket, or we were over here dealing with a tragedy in our family, and we have a whole story We don't want you to go on with the sacred scroll without including us in it. So remember us. And in a way, to me, it represents anyone who's ever felt left behind or left out.
0: And all the more so they actually bring their own case before God, right? The community is not always the best at remembering every individual person. But in this case, these people come before Moses and say, we've been left out. God thinks about it such as it is. And comes back and says, "You know what? We should make a law for them. We should make sure that they're included. So it's a reminder that those in leadership, you know, we like to think of leaders as having the best interests of their com- entire community in mind, but here's God forgetting about I'm going to maybe be struck by lightning for saying this now. <laughs> uh, here's God Here's the Torah describing God as not quite remembering everybody's everybody's best interests, but when they bring their case. God takes a step back and says, yes, we need to make sure that everybody is included. I think it's an incredible statement of about what leadership is about, what Jewish life is about, and actually what community is about.
1: No, it's just the concept of God needing help in being inclusive is so fascinating.
0: Yeah, it really is entirely fascinating. So, Rabbi Zoe Klein, if you don't mind, we're going to take a short break here, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation about these specific stories, but also more about storytelling in Judaism. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I want to let you know that I just released information about the Summer Beit Midrash, Summer Learning Opportunities, that are available through Asok. And there are four classes that I'm going to be leading. Two of them are class series of three or four classes, and two of them are actually just one shot, one hour, no cost, come learn about something. The two that are like that are one called Fixed and Fluid, Making Jewish Prayer Mean Something, and another session called L'cha Di Shabbat, Sexuality, and Tikkun Olam. And then the two class series that I'm offering One of them is on Abraham Joshua Heschel's view of prophecy and social justice. And then I'll be teaching a series called, O Jerusalem, the 3000 year story of a city and a symbol. So if any of those sound interesting to you, Log on to laasok.org, and just go to Current Offerings. You can find out lots more information. And by the way, if you're not on the Laasok mailing list and you want to be getting information about these classes, then just go to laasok.org and you can sign up right then and there. Now let's get back to my conversation with Rabbi Zoe Klein. Welcome back. We've been talking about some very specific stories from this week's Torah portion, Baha'u but I I wonder if we can broaden that conversation a little bit now. I noticed when I asked you what you wanted to talk about in the Parsha, that you brought up two moments in the Parsha that really, I think, are moments of weaving story, moments where we are able to find multiple meanings in the text that maybe were not even intended in the original text, but through layers and layers of commentary, we've we've found and imbued all these meanings. And in fact, we just found some new meanings that I think neither of us had ever noticed before <laughs> in this text. So I, I guess, you know, what do you think this tells us about storytelling in Judaism and storytelling in our Jewish lives?
1: I think it tells us that there's this magical, uh, there's a like kind of chemistry That happens when you combine different elements together, when one element is the parsha, is is Torah and another element is your own life and experience. And then you mix that in Havruta with someone else's experience and it's the outcome is never going to be the same, right? It's always going to be some different color, different texture. And I think that's that's what story is born out of. It's these different perspectives
0: yeah, it reminds me of a statement in Pirkei Avot where I think it's Rabbi Ben Bagbag says that with Torah you should have fokhba fokhba. you should turn it around and around because everything is in it. And I think I've always understood that statement to mean essentially that we bring our understandings and our needs and our biases and our um and our cultural context and our stories to the Torah. Right, and so when we read the text, we're uh, we're able to see something different this time than we saw the last time. Mm-hmm. And when you and I read it together, we found something different than either of us had found individually. So this idea that everything is contained in Torah to me means that Torah is something that we're always reinterpreting through our own lens.
1: You know, something I always tell the Benay Mitzvah students is that Torah is built. You know, while they're struggling to learn the Hebrew or memorize and the trope and everything. Torah is all consonants. It has no vowels in it. And um, consonants are made with our bodies, with our tongue, lips, throat, teeth, but vowels are our breath. And of course, you know, the Hebrew word for breath and soul is the same, neshama. And so the Torah itself is like a body, almost like an empty body until they chant from it. And in doing so, they contribute their breath and they kind of resurrect the story into a modern time. They they give it the animation to live in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what we do whenever whenever we study together. Actually, one of the stories in Candle, Feather, Wooden Spoon is called Yofiel. And I actually had read this book on Jewish angelology. And Yofiel is actually a real esoteric name of an angel um, who is the keeper of the secrets of Torah. And I was really interested in, well, how did Yofiel get that job? <laughs> Why not? other angels. And so um, the story imagines that Yophiel is kind of a clumsier, although good-hearted angel. And so they're afraid to give him jobs like, uh, you know, being one of the Shalom Alechem angels, because he might veer a worshiper off the road into the river. He's just a little, a little scattered. Um, but they make him the keeper of the secrets of Torah, because the idea is that when he accidentally lets go of a secret, it sparks revelation. And so, even though he's not really keeping the secrets very well, he's fulfilling this greater mission, which is you know letting it unfold individually in each of us.
0: I love that. I mean, first of all, I can relate to being the the clumsier, more forgetful <laughs> angel. but I think also, you know what are you doing there? You're you're finding the entrees into the text. You're finding ways to explain things that Jews have been thinking about for a really long time, as well as relating it to us. So, you know, I was joking about being the the, the clumsy angel, but here we are. we are, we're real people and we're flawed, right? And so we can relate to the flawed angel, the one who doesn't quite fit that job, doesn't quite fit this job. And so here you bring Torah to life in a whole different way. And it seems to me that That's actually what Jews have been doing for a long time. When you were talking about this notion of filling in the text, it seems to me that that's what Midrash has been for a very long time. The rabbis would read these stories and they would say, but there's more. There needs to be more. We know there's more. And in fact, the Torah tells us there's more. Right. So, for example, the Torah, when it introduces Abraham, it says that his brother had died in the presence of their father. But it doesn't tell us the story I mean, of course there was a story and the torah in many ways is a is a launching ground for stories it has mm-hmm. always been it is it was meant to be and when we write stories about it we're actually continuing this thousands of year old process of weaving judaism together through through story so let me take a step back and introduce your book you mentioned the name of it already um it's called candle feather wooden spoon And so I'd love if you could tell us a a bit about the book. And then I'm also interested in the title, which is so interesting.
1: Mm. Okay, so thank you. It's a Candle Feather Wooden Spoon is a collection of 22 short stories. And some of them evolve from, as we've been talking about, these questions that arise from text or from Jewish tradition. Um, It's actually divided into three sections. So the candle section has eight stories that... Um, evolve out of tradition. Um, they might come to answer a question like, why does matzah have holes? Or, um, you know, there's a story we were talking about Leviticus earlier. There's a story called the Flying Insect Cafe, and it's a family who are present when Moses announces that uh, flying insects are no longer kosher you can't eat them they're abominable yeah I
0: read that one this morning I really enjoyed the description it was like caterpillar lasagna and things (laughs) like
1: that and they're um this family is just horrified because it feels like a very personal attack on them since their whole livelihood is flying insect cuisine so they have to rethink everything so and then the second section feather is stories that Um, take place in modern times, so the characters might remind you of yourself or of of people you know, and they take place in the now. And um, Wood and Spoon are stories that have a bit of philosophy, theology in them. Um, I love the title because I've always loved that ritual, the Candle Feather Spoon ritual, where in a traditional household, Parents would hide hamates around the house before Pesa, and the kids would search them out with a candle and then brush, you know, brush the hamates onto a wooden spoon with a feather. But there's even, to me, these mundane objects, the candle, feather, the wooden spoon, they kind of speak to the process of writing because the candle is, you know, the light of an idea and the feather is the idea taking wings or the imagination being tickled And then the wooden spoon is, you know, stirring it all up and then serving out these hopefully, you know, meaty or vegan meat, (laughs) nourishing, uh, you know, sustenance to people. Um, So it it encapsulates so much to me.
0: That ritual actually is near and dear to my heart because Mm -hmm. my, I can picture my kids searching for Cheerios around the house and we didn't use the whole feather thing, but the idea that we're searching out meaning also mm-hmm. to me is another meaning of that ritual. We're looking all around the house to find the little morsels and, you know, the the stories then are the result of the morsels that we, that we find. Uh, how did you get into storytelling? How did this become a part of your life?
1: You know, I've always, I've always wanted to be a storyteller and to be a writer. You know, if you were to ask me as an eight-year-old, what do you want to be? It would have been. A writer of stories. And I've always been drawn to fiction, storytelling, and poetry. Um, you know, my father is an artist. And so I grew up with a, he has a very large studio that is attached to the house. And so I would sit in the studio and watch creation evolve as he built things with his hands. And, you know, throughout that, you know, we, we would talk and share stories. And it was really really beautiful to grow up uh in this artistic creative space and so that really contributed to my love of creativity and interpretation
0: Does storytelling play an important role for you in your both your rabbinic life as a rabbi and in your Jewish life
1: oh sure yeah and i I'm, I'm sure you have amazing uh stories to tell about how it how it works in your rabbinate as well um But I I do try to listen to people. So much of our work is listening and how we listen and -hmm. how we remember. Um, In fact, just a little side note, um, one of the things my father taught me as an artist was that two of the most important things an artist needs to have is the ability to observe details and to remember them. And then when later in rabbinical school, I learned about how the two candles of Shabbat represent observe Shabbat and remember Shabbat. It's so amazing to me because those that's what an artist is. That's what it means to be an artist. And so um, as a storyteller and a writer, I try to be observant and remember what people tell me. Those are the things that make you a good listener and interpreter. So I try to listen to people as if they're sharing a narrative. What are the themes of this story? What is the arc of character um, what are the different plot, possible plot lines? Um, and I think it's helped me be a better, be a better listener and to help reflect back to people, um, the words they're saying, uh, you know, for example, this is a really obvious one, but I remember working with a couple and, um, there was some struggle in their relationship and one wanted to get married and the other wasn't sure, and um, we started talking about what they admire in each other. And the one who wasn't sure said, um, well, she's really good at tying knots. She's excellent at tying knots. And, <laughs> and it was just so interesting that they didn't see the metaphor of, you know, that tying the knot means, you know, getting yeah. hitched, right? Um, but he, that's all he could talk about was her, how skilled she was at tying the knot.
0: <laughs> it's interesting, that, you know, I was thinking of storytelling when I asked the question as in fictional storytelling, right? Telling stories from the Bima, telling stories to children. But you're right that, I mean, first of all, we humans are always telling stories, right? And, and as rabbis, a lot of what we do is actually listening to people and hearing their stories. I know people often tell me about, especially maybe around a funeral, we'll sit and we'll talk about a loved one and you'll hear the stories of their lives. And then our job as a rabbi is then, to recount those stories at the funeral, to retell the stories that people are telling. And it seems to me that that's such a Jewish act and not that only Jews do it, but that it is so integral to Judaism that we tell stories, we listen to stories and then we retell stories. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those stories change over time and sometimes they grow and, you know, maybe that's how legends are born. But I think that stories have such Mm -hmm. a human core. They express these really deep things about who we are and what we need, what we're worried about, what we're aspiring toward. I, I think that they're so, they're so human.
1: You know, I was, I wasn't really fully aware that I was answering your question you know, about telling stories with stories about listening. And it's interesting because the writing process for me, the, the, the smallest amount of the writing process, the smallest part is the writing. And the majority is different forms of listening, whether it's listening through research or, you know, the field work of just communicating with people. And it's maybe the part of storytelling that people don't talk about enough, which is just what it means to absorb and, and to hear, to listen. You talked about, um, you know, when you meet with someone to write a eulogy, when, you know, you do an intake when someone has died and, um, that's such an that's such a unique type of listening and you are listening to these stories and looking for narratives and looking for how, how you're going to weave this into a tapestry of words that will make sense with, and there's, and you're even listening between the words because not everyone is telling you the full story, right? Mm-hmm. They're telling you just a little bit. So you're looking for, um, watery eyes. You're looking for body language, um, I remember talking with a family and they were talking about how lovely their loved one was and how joyful and energetic and how much he contributed to the world. And they said that um, he had owned a liquor store (laughs) and um, the title of the liquor, the, the motto of the liquor store was, we'll keep you in good spirits. Mm -hmm. And so there was, the title of the story, you know, right there in the narrative. Um, So it really is, it's such a privilege, right, as a rabbi to be able to bear witness to people's stories and to hold them and cherish them.
0: Yeah, so I can see then how the kind of writing that you do, storytelling, is an extension of what we Jews are doing, which is telling stories and hearing stories. Do you have maybe a favorite story or two from your new book from Candle, Feather, Wooden Spoon that you want to tell us about? that's such a hard question.
1: <laughs> it's like 22 babies. Um, but I think, and I think the answer would change at any moment, but I, right at this moment, I'm going to lift up the goat keeper and the goat keeper is a story of a man, ahead, who you recognize from numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is there at Sinai when God appears at Sinai and he, everyone's terrified right? um, The thunder, lightning, but he's more terrified than anyone else. And so he takes, he grabs his wife and runs and his wife Geula does not want to leave the fire on the mountain, but she's forced to, and they end up far away from the community and they establish a tribe of people um, that worships the fire on the mountain, but was not there to receive Torah. So they left before they got the Torah. And so they have their own set of rituals and laws. Um, Geula herself becomes a prophetess. And um, from their line uh, is born this woman um, who becomes the goat keeper. And every time uh, one of the goats from the temple is released and sent to Azazel into the wilderness, they end up going to this, Group of people and be and becomes part of her herd of goats, and so she's the keeper of the scapegoats and in that way protect humanity. And I love this story. Um, I've been working on this story and returning to the story for decades, and I think it just has a really interesting perspective, and um, there's something messianic in it as well. And so it's to me it's it's deeply moving, and I'm excited to share it and talk with people about it.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing that. You've brought together so many different elements of, of Torah, the Sinai and Salaf Echad, who of course is an important person in his own right, and then the scapegoat ritual mm-hmm. of sending the people's sins out into the into the wilderness. It seems to me that and, that, and you know, I don't, maybe you can tell me why you wrote that story, but it seems to me that you're filling a few different needs, right? The need of What about someone who was afraid of this experience? What would happen? It's just someone who wanted who who needed to walk away from Sinai. And then the need of who's going to take care of these goats that get sent out into the wilderness, as well as you've actually played up the roles that women are playing in these Mm -hmm. stories, right? So there's a bunch of what we might call sort of holes in the story or openings in the story that sort of are begging for a new interpretation. And you bring this story that that brings them together and sort of weaves a different way of understanding.
1: And that story has a little bit of magic realism in it as well. The goats themselves, they have these horns that are like crystal and gleaming and, and rounded and they almost touch at the top. So it almost looks like they wear halos Mm -hmm. and they're, they're large and they actually um, can speak to the goat keeper. They don't speak to anyone else and tell their story. Um, I think it you're right, it plays upon uh the questions of the scapegoats and um and the people of this tribe, this lost tribe, are outsiders, but yet as outsiders, they serve uh an essential role um mm-hmm. in protecting humanity. They're they're there for a reason.
0: Let me ask you a question about a different story in the book. The the one that you're describing now is so Jewish, right? As we mm-hmm. talked about, you're bringing together at least three different yes. elements of Torah. Um, I read the story called Catching the Wind, which you've you've called it a Talit origin story. So yes. I read through this story, and it's about a little girl who's on her houseboat, and you know, there's a, so a whole cast of characters. Um, I won't give away the whole plot so you know, people can read it. But in the end, there actually was no Talit in the story until yeah. I realized that you were using something else as a symbol for a talit, And so I read through this story and I thought this is a beautiful story and it's not a specifically Jewish story per se, and yet it is a Jewish story. So maybe tell me about what's going on there. How, how are you thinking of this as a Jewish story?
1: That's really interesting. Well, you know, Rabbi uh, Rachel Timoner has a book uh, that talks about the, the breath. And I remember hearing a talk that she gave where she was talking about the breath um and wind, ruach, and how you, you can't um how you harness the breath or you harness the wind in order to get to places of destination. And I, that idea just stuck with me for a long time. And I just loved the concept of you know when you're on a on a boat, on a sailboat, you can't change the wind, but you can adjust your sails um and and hopefully get home that way. You know, it's a, it's upon you to adjust the sails. Now um, in a marina, or if you're a sailor, one thing you need to know a lot about is, is knots. And so I think the combination of the knots and um, these sails, I started thinking about that more and more whenever I put on a tallit or saw somebody when they, you know, whoosh a, a tallit over their heads and it catches the air and it kind of swells up and it's, Really, like a sail, there are so many ways that the Talit is symbolic. Um, there's that famous poem where the Talit is compared to a parachute. Um, sometimes we compare it to a blanket keeping us warm and safe or like wings taking our prayers from our lips to God's ears. But I really love the idea of the Talit as a sail, and you're right. it doesn't explicitly say that it says it's a origin tale. It's not the <laughs> origin tale. Um, I just love the idea of that a little bit of a different interpretation of what it means to wear a tallit, that in wearing a tallit, we're reminding ourselves to adjust our sails and to be sensitive to God's ruach and to the winds of change or however you want to interpret it. Um, And being pliable enough and flexible enough to move with that over a turbulent a turbulent sea, um, in order to get to safety and
0: maybe also tying ourselves, securing ourselves Mm. to something secure, which is a tradition, a family generations of what's been passed down to us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that.
0: So, so, so who is this book for and how do you imagine it being used or read?
1: Well, this there's a special art, as you know, to multi-generational storytelling. You know, when you have a community at Shabbat services or at uh, a Holy Day event, um, it's really it, there's the special art to tell it to talking to different generations at the same time. Um, and that's what this book does. So that's what this book is. This book could be stories that could be told to younger folks. It could be stories that are told around a campfire. It could be um, stories that a group of empty nesters read together. And at the end of every story, there are questions. And so the questions are designed to elicit, not just elicit conversation, but to deepen relationships. There might be questions there, even if you've known someone for a long time, that you had never thought of asking them. Mm. And so it elicits deeper relationships. It is stories that could be reinterpreted and told in different ways. That to me is actually what makes, what would make this book successful is if people read the stories and then told them, but not necessarily read them aloud, you know, interpreted them in their own way, right? Retold them um and allowed them to evolve and take on a new life. like we were talking about in the very beginning, um, you know, when Torah meets our experience, it becomes something new. That's what I would love for these stories to touch readers experiences and then evolve into something new. And I'd love to see what that is. And also to, you know, maybe even um, I'd love to visit communities and help with that process, talk about storytelling and, how we write our own stories.
0: Yeah, I love that. And it seems to me that that as well is part of what Jews have been doing for such a long time. You know, when we look at we look at old midrash and there often are more than one version of a story, which means that people were telling these stories. They were they were oral traditions. Somebody must have come up with them. Somebody wrote them. We don't have those people's names anymore, right? Well, sometimes we do. Sometimes the rabbis tell us who said what, but often what we get is just a a glimpse of a story that was being passed around. And so, you know, here we are, here you are, continuing to contribute new ideas, new stories that can be passed around and and be told. And so when we come back here in a thousand years, we'll see how your stories have evolved Mm. and we'll see if they're still being told in the same ways and, or if they've taken on new and different meanings, which of course I imagine over the course of centuries, they, they would.
1: So there, I'll just give one example of a story and how it could be used. There's a story called "The Magic Word," and it begins with a character who, as a child, asks her family pass the mac and cheese, and they say, "What's the magic word?" And she says, "Abracadabra," because she thinks that's the magic word, and everyone laughs. And she learns that the magic word in that case is "please," and it sends her down. Uh, you know, it it it, it sparks her imagination and her curiosity about magic words. And she starts to study them, even in college, she you know, majors in linguistics. And, um, and eventually the story leads her to try to seek out this Jewish rabbi guru who lives on Mount Moron in Israel. And she goes on this long trek and she meets this rabbi and she asks her, um, what's the magic word? And I'm giving away the end of the story. But what the rabbi's answer is, I don't know. (laughs) And this infuriates Chantal. She's come so far. She can't believe that this is what the rabbi would say. But then as she contemplates it more and more, she realizes that I don't know is really the key to opening up curiosity. It is the starting place to great wisdom and learning and discovery And so that story could be used as as a teaching tool in -hmm. classrooms um, about magic words. You know, when has yes changed a world for you saying yes? When has no, when has saying no actually changed the world? What are other words? How do we use language? Um, And then what, what does it mean to say, I don't know, why are we so afraid to admit that we don't know things when in fact it's such a courageous beginning um and it it's a place of connection so it's a great story for a listening conversation the book could be used in um confirmation curriculum um you know lots of different ways but that's just one example
0: yeah you're you're giving me goosebumps with this i <laughs> i love the the i don't know part of it so much first of all it reminds me of the book of Psalms, where it says that awe is the beginning of wisdom, mm. because the beginning of wisdom is knowing that you don't know, right, is the willingness to ask questions. And so I I'd like, I was so moved by what you said. And secondly, because I actually, we had a really similar experience to what you're describing, where I can picture my, my little son, who now is 15, and at the time was about four, turning to my dad and saying, Saba, pick me up, and my dad says to him, what's the magic word? And he said, Wingardium Leviosa. And so <laughs> there you, you read my mind, you knew what happened in real life to me. And, and I think about how those early experiences shape us. And we never know how something we will do or say will have an effect on somebody's life. And the idea that you go searching for a magic word, and you end up as, you know, a scholar on top of a mountain, you know, what is it that propels us in certain directions? And I know for me that I am certain I'm a rabbi because of stories I heard, because I heard rabbis telling stories. And this came up in my interview two weeks ago with a different rabbi. Also, we were talking about camp. And I remember the stories that the rabbis told on Friday nights at the flagpole as we were celebrating bringing in Shabbat. And there is no question in my mind that I do what I do today because some rabbi wearing shorts told a story 30 years ago at camp. And there is... Absolutely, no question that these words and these stories are powerful enough to move mountains and to move people's lives. Mm. Amen. Well, Rabbi Zoe Klein, I want to thank you for spending some time talking with me today. It's been really fascinating both to hear about your stories and about your process and about um, and about your new book.
1: It's been a joy talking with you too. You've, it's, you've, you're an amazing kavruta.
0: <laughs> thank you. Well, so we'll have to do some more studying and maybe yes. come up with some more stories together. We'd love it. Uh, The book is called Candle, Feather, Wooden Spoon uh, by Rabbi Zoe Klein and is just filled with wonderful stories. And uh, again, thanks for your time today and thanks for sharing your stories and and your story with me. Thank you. That's my conversation with Rabbi Zoe Klein. Makes me want to go read some stories and maybe write some stories. A reminder that you can sign up for those four great classes I mentioned. Which are coming up in June and July at LaAsok.org. L-A-A-S-O-K.org. As always, if you have questions or comments, send me an email at rabbistreifer at gmail.com. Have a great week. Seven Minute Torah is a production of LaAsok, Sacred Texts, Modern Meaning. If you enjoy this program, please consider becoming a sponsor at patreon.com slash seven Torah. For more information about upcoming learning opportunities, go to laasoka.org, laasok.org. I'm Rabbi Micah Stryfer. Thanks for listening.